Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in John chapter 8. I'm going to actually pick up one last verse in John 7, verse 53, and I'm going to go through verse 11 in chapter 8. We're talking about the woman called an adultery. There are no parallel passages to this text. And so we'll start in John 8, verse 1 which says this, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. If you put that in with the last verse of John 7:53, which says they all went to their home. This was after Jesus gave his rivers of living water speech at the ceremony of the pouring of water at the Feast of Tabernacles, a very dramatic moment. Everybody went home after that, and Jesus went to the Mount of Olives where he was probably staying, I think, Mary and Martha in Bethany. Now, before we go through the story of the woman caught in adultery, we've got to deal with a textual problem because this verse is notoriously weak in textual authority. And many, many, many people say it doesn't belong in the Gospel of John. However, you will notice that most modern translations put it in there with brackets around it. So we will look at some of the textual... Well, I'm not going to get into great detail on this. I'm mainly going to quote authority, those who think it's in and those who think it's out of the text. First of all, the NIV Study Bible says the, st the story is absent from almost all the important early manuscripts. And the early manuscripts who do have it put it somewhere else besides at the beginning of John 8. And also many other ancient witnesses, early Christian church history writers, for example, they don't, ha they don't mention the story. But on the other hand, the NIV Study Bible points out the story may well have been authentic. Here's a quote from A.T. Robertson, quote, this paragraph can no longer be considered a part of the Gospel of John, but it is in all probability a true story of Jesus, very likely drawn by early students from the collection of Papias, published about A.D. 140. So what Robertson is saying is, yes, John probably didn't write it, but somebody wrote it, and it happened, and it's therefore part of the Scriptures. Now here's some arguments against John's authorship I pulled from the Whedon Commentary. Here's some external proofs. First of all, it, the story is absence, absent from a large share of the best ap manuscripts. Second of all, there's an absence of quotations of the passage in the earliest Christian writers. Third, there's a great variety of readings in the different copies of the passage, those, those places, those manuscripts that do have it. There's a lot of differences in, in the story, in, in, excuse me, in the text, in the manuscripts. Those are external proofs against John's authorship according to Whedon, and now we go to internal proofs. First of all, it is claimed that the style is not similar to John's style. Second of all, you, someone, you can remove the story from the text, and there's no break in the story. You can just read the Gospel of John just as if nothing had happened. And the third argument, the third internal proof argument is that the story interrupts the flow of thought in the Gospel of John. Well, now, of course, a lot of this is subjective. And people can spend a lot of time, as they have, arguing over those points. Well, what I'm going to do right now is just give you quotations from an article by Stephen J. Cole on Bible.org where he quotes the authorities who are against the story being in John and those who say it is in John. And you will see that it is a Hall of Fame list of evangelical scholarship on both sides of the issue. And I'm not going to take a side because... This is above my pay grade, all this textual criticism stuff. All right, here's the quote that say in favor of the proposition that the story is not in the Gospel of John. Quote, These reasons cause many reputable 
evangelical scholars and the reasons are the same sort of reasons I just mentioned, textual reasons. These reasons cause many reputable evangelical scholars to conclude that this story is not a part of John's original gospel. Among these are Leon Morris, Merrill Tenney, D.A. Carson, Ed Bloom, Andreas Kostenberger, Colin Cruz, John Piper, R.C. Linsky, R.V.G. Tasker, B.F. Westcott, Alfred Edesheim, Frederick Godet, G. Campbell Morgan, and A.T. Robertson. I've, I know, I've from, I don't know, but I'm familiar with all but two of those guys, and those guys are big shots. They don't think it's in there. However, Stephen J. Cole of Bible.org continues, However, these scholars generally hold that it, the story, reports an authentic historical event that is true to the character of Jesus. So even if you don't think the story's in the original text of John, it's still such a great story, and it sounds just like something Jesus would do that we all love to talk about it, so I'm going to assume that it's in there. Now here's some arguments in favor of John's authorship. Again, a quote from Stephen J. Cole. Some scholars, however, argue that in spite of the weak textual support, this story should be included in John's gospel and treated as inspired scripture, based largely on internal evidence. R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur, James Boyce, William Hendrickson, A.W. Pink, J.C. Ryle, David Brown, and Jameson Fawcett and Brown, and John Calvin. I've heard of every one of those guys, and those are heavy hitters, and they say it should be in there. They argue that the story, I'll continue the quotation, they argue that the story fits the flow of John's gospel at this point and the pattern that John follows of his story, setting the stage for the theme to follow. They also point out that both Augustine and Ambrose in the late 4th and early 5th centuries believed that the story may have been omitted because it seems to suggest that Jesus condoned adultery. So there are solid men on both sides of this issue. Yes, a battle of the heavyweights. We're going to assume that at some, in some way, this is inspired scripture, either written by John or somebody else, and included in the text. We go to verse 2 in John 8. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. That would be coming back from the Mount of Olives. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Now, going back to the temple from the Mount of Olives, of course, is the same pattern he did during Passion Week at the very end of his ministry. That's, so that's customary for Je on Jesus' part. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught him. Sitting was the preferred position of acknowledged Jewish rabbis. So that's what rabbis did. They sit. John 8 verses 3 through 5. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. Teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law of Moses, commanded us to stone such women. In the, excuse me, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Well, first of all, the woman was caught in adultery in the act, it says in verse 4. In the act, that means they must have seen the man there, because how do you catch a woman in the act of adultery by herself? I mean, she had to have the man there, but they didn't bring the man. Well, so they broke the law right there on the spot. Now, why would they not bring the man? It seems to me if they want to catch Jesus in a trap, they could bring man too. I could not find too much learned commentary on that issue, so I'm just going to speculate myself a little bit. Perhaps the man who committed adultery with this woman was a friend of the accusing Pharisees, and the Pharisees did not want to get him in trouble because he was their good buddy, in which case the Pharisees would be pretty hypocritical. Or perhaps the man was one of the accusing Pharisees himself. Now, if that were the case... The man would have an awful lot of gall. He would commit adultery with the woman and then publicly accuse her even when he was the one that did it. I don't 
I, that that would take a lot of gold. So I tend to think that's probably not it. But he could have been a higher up, a uppity up that the Pharisees knew. I don't know. But at any rate, the woman is dragged before the crowd in the temple court there. And let me give you a quote from Steve Andrews, who puts a pretty point on the description of the woman being dragged in. Very eloquent. He should be nominated for an Oscar for screenwriting. Caught in the act of adultery, dragged naked by force into a public gathering place, humiliated by sin, separated from anyone or lover to protect her, judged and sentenced to death without trial by self-righteous leaders, and placed before the king of kings who is pure and holy. You get the idea. This was a bad, sad situation for that woman. Now, I don't know how he knows the woman was naked. I've noticed a lot of commentators assume she was either half-naked or only partially clothed. I guess because she was caught in the act, but I can't believe they would drag her out there. Drag her out there in public without letting her put her clothes on. I mean, that would be pretty bad. I can't believe that these Jews would do that. But at any rate, we don't know. Now, an interesting point here. Tradition often holds that this woman was Mary Magdalene, which I don't believe for a minute. Wikipedia mentions this. Here's the reasoning behind this. We know that Mary Magdalene was unmarried, unwilled, and childless, and yet she had money because she had supported Jesus in his ministry. Well, if she was unmarried and unwilled and childless, where could she have gotten the money in that society? Well, of course, from prostitution. So then Jesus earns her loyalty and following by forgiving her in this passage here in John 8. And then Mary Magdalene, the, the... it would make a lot of sense theologically for this woman to be Mary Magdalene because she is the first witness of Jesus' resurrection. And so when you think about the story of redemption, what a great story it is that a forgiven prostitute would be the first to be redeemed by Jesus. Well, that makes a great story, but I don't. there's absolutely no evidence that this woman was Mary Magdalene. In fact, there's no evidence that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. She's accused of being a prostitute because she was from Magdala where there were a lot of prostitutes. That's like saying everybody, every woman from Haiko, China is a prostitute just because the place is crawling with prostitutes. doesn't make any sense. Now, they brought her into the center here. They made her stand in the center of the center with all the people standing around with Jesus in the middle and the Pharisees in the middle. The woman's accusers must have been especially intent on humiliating her, according to the NIV Study Bible. They could have kept her in private custody while they interrogated Jesus. Oh, no, this makes great theater to drag her out there and see if Jesus has the guts to condemn her or to not condemn her. They're setting a trap for Jesus, which we'll talk about in just a minute. The whole incident was designed to trap Jesus, as the NIV Study Bible says. Now, this phrase, she was caught in the act. The Jewish Pharisees are trying to put a semblance of legal order on this because the law did require, actually the law required two witnesses in Deuteronomy 19.15, which says this, one witness cannot establish any wrongdoing or sin against a person, whatever that person has done. A fact must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. That was the general law. That was the Mosaic law. The rabbinic law, the traditions of the elders, changed that and said that there was only one witness required if, if a wife was suspected of adultery, which is bad legal procedure. One witness, that witness could be mistaken or could be biased or could be lying. Now, in verse 5... John says this, in the law, Moses commanded us, actually this is the, he's reporting what the Pharisees are saying, the law, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Actually, the law didn't say that. Let's look at the relevant legal 
provisions in Leviticus 20.10. If a man commits adultery with a married woman, if he commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. It says put to death, but doesn't say by stoning. Deuteronomy 22.22, if a man is discovered having sexual relations with another man's wife, both the man who had sex with the woman and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. And there's no mention of stoning there. Now, there is a mention of stoning if the woman who commits adultery is a betrothed virgin, not married, but betrothed. And then in that case, it says they're going to be stoned. The rabbinic law, according to Gill and Clark, says that if no method is prescribed in the Mosaic law, then strangling is the preferred method of execution. I don't know what to make of this. The NIV study Bible says, well, you didn't report the law quite accurately. I don't think it's a big deal. You know, the law commanded us to stone such women. Okay, the law commanded us to execute such women. They weren't being precise, maybe. Or, and it could be the woman was a betrothed virgin. We don't know that, too. That's a possibility, in which case they would have been exactly precise. So we're not going to get the Pharisees on that, on misquoting the law. We're going to get them for being obnoxious hypocrites. Now, let's speculate as to how the woman was caught in adultery. John Gill says this. She might have been caught the day before in one of the booths. Remember, this was the Feast of Tabernacles when everybody built these booths outside their house in the yard. And those booze were, you know, they were slapped together. They probably didn't provide a lot of privacy. Uh, maybe having drunk too much during the festival. Remember, this is a joyful time. The, the Feast of the Tabernacles was noted for being a feast of joy. And it was a harvest festival. And so everybody's drinking and carrying around. And maybe somebody got carried away there in one of those booze. So, uh, Maybe so. Adam Clark says this, It is allowed that adultery was exceedingly common at this time, so common that they had ceased to put the law in force against it. The waters of jealousy were no longer drunk. That's referring to the Old Testament rituals where a woman suspected of adultery against her husband, she had to drink some floor from the dirt of the tabernacle, some uh, water that was mixed with dust from the floor of the tabernacle. If her belly swelled up, that means she was guilty. If her belly did not swell, she was innocent and so forth. So the waters, uh, continuing with Clark's quote, the waters of jealousy were no longer drunk, the culprits, or those suspected of this crime, being so very numerous, and the men who were guilty themselves, dared not try their suspected wives, as it was believed the waters would have no evil effect upon the wife, if the husband himself had been criminal. I think that's something the Jews added to the law. I don't think that, I'll have to go back and check that, but I don't think the Old Testament law says anything about if the husband's guilty, the, the the waters, the bitter waters, wouldn't have an effect on the wife. I don't, I don't think that was in Moses. But anyway, the point is, is that there was adultery everywhere. So this was not a uncommon occurrence. And like usually, when laws or when people become so sinful, the law becomes ineffective against those crimes and sins. Kind of like in America today, that used to be in in the law books of South Carolina, it was illegal to fornicate. It was illegal to commit adultery. Homosexuality was illegal, but not anymore. Even when the laws are on the books, people just bang away at their convenience, having no fear of God, no fear of the law. Of course, they're going to pay for it. They'll pay for it in this life and the next, but the courts aren't going to make them pay. Now, Jesus is often accused when he, at the end of the story, he let the prostitute go. He said, go and send no more. Nobody's condemning you. He's often accused of being soft on adultery. Now, that's not true because he did say go and sin no more. 
But just in case anybody thinks that he's too soft on adultery, remember Jesus believed every jot and tittle of the Old Testament law was applicable. Let's look at Proverbs 5, 6, and 7 and see what happens to adulterers. And Jesus would agree with this, every word. Number one, the adulterer is simple and senseless, Proverbs 7, 7. He is caught like an animal in a snare and slaughtered, Proverbs 6, 32. He is led to bondage and death, Proverbs 5, 22 and 23, Proverbs 7, 26 and 27. He loses honor and strength, Proverbs 7, 26 through 27. He has a ruined reputation, Proverbs 5, 14. He is led to self-destruction, Proverbs 6.32, and he is the victim of the vengeance of a jealous husband, Proverbs 6.34. That reminds me of a Baptist church here in the south near us where my kids used to go to, where they had friends. They would go to these youth activities, and in that church, there was one day there was a, a shooting. man shows up at church waving a gun, firing away because one of the women in the church was shacked up excuse me, one of the men of the church were shacked up with his wife, and he didn't like it, and they had to call the police. There is nothing worse than a husband who's jealous when he finds out his wife's committed adultery. Ooh, they tend to not like that too much. That tends to be a volatile situation. So no, Jesus is not condoning adultery in this passage. Notice when the Pharisees came to Jesus, they called him teacher, teacher, rabbi. They were hypocrites. They were very polite on the outside, but on the inside, they were full of snakes. They were trying to get him. They were trying to trap him. Now, here's the test that they put before Jesus. If Jesus answered by saying, oh, she was caught in adultery, stone her, then he would be overstepping his authority because the Romans did not allow the Jews to carry out death sentences. So if he had said, carry out the law, carry out the Mosaic law, then the Romans would be mad at him. Not to mention the fact the Roman law did not require death for adulteresses. So he would be putting the authority of the Jewish law over the Roman law. The Roman law says Jews aren't going to commit, aren't going to execute uh, capital sentences. They're not going to do that. And they're not going to judge people by their Jewish law, and especially in a capital crime because, in a capital case, because our Roman law does not require death for adulteresses. So Jesus was, on, it was in danger of getting in trouble with the Romans if he said stoner. But on the other, and not to mention the fact he could be charged with inconsistency. He had often received sinners. He had eaten with prostitutes before, or allegedly. Yeah, with a, a, a woman, it was a sinful woman in the, house, in the house of Simon the Pharisee. She And sinful woman, she was probably a prostitute. And uh, he had said that publicans and harlots would enter, in, tax collectors and harlots would enter into the kingdom of heaven so he was very forgiving of the sins of prostitutes, and now he's going to say, Stoner? Well, that doesn't look good. So either he would, get, either he would make his ministry of forgiveness suspect, or he, would make, or he would get himself in trouble with the Roman authorities if he said Stoner. So that was a bad option. The other option was to say, Let her go. Well, now if he did that, he would seem to be relaxing public morals and condoning adultery. He would also be seen to be opposing the law of Moses, as the NIV Study Bible points out. So he was, as general, caught between the rock and the hard place in a trap that the Pharisees set for him. But was there ever one trap that the Pharisees set that Jesus didn't walk out of? He walked out of them all. And that's why I like this story so much, because when you look and see how he answered them, it makes I'm an ex-lawyer, and it just makes my ex-lawyer's heart glad to see how he quoted the law and hung them hoisted them on their own legalistic petard. 
John 8, 6. They asked this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him, as I just pointed out. Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. Now, this is one of the most mysterious things that Jesus ever did, and everybody loves to speculate about it. And so, as with all speculations, they allow people's imaginations to run riot, and that can be pretty fun, as long as you realize you don't say to your brother who has a different speculation, I'm not going to go to church with you anymore because you have violated Christian orthodoxy. Of course not. This is just speculation. So here's the first speculation. He was writing down the sins of the woman's accusers. Number two, speculation number two, he's referring to the trial by ordeal. This is John Gill and also Lightfoot, the famous Westminster divine theologian. He was referring to the trial of ordeal where you had to mix the dirt of the tabernacle in the water and make the woman drink it. Well, I don't know why he would be referring to the trial by ordeal by doing that. That's kind of a stretch in my opinion. Speculation number three, he's showing contempt to the Pharisees. This is the one I like. This is from John Gill. He acts like he's bored with the proceedings. I'm bored with you guys. I'm just going to sit down here and doodle a little bit in the sand while you continue with your nonsense. I really like that. I don't know if it's true, but it, if I was making a movie, that's, that's what I would do. Notice in the King James, it's in, in italics, so it's not in the original text, but notice what the King James translators did here. John 8, 6. This they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground, as though he heard them not. As though he heard them not. In other words, as though he was bored out of his mind and he's not going to listen to them. Interesting speculation. I like that one. Now, speculation number four. This is another good one. Perhaps the woman was naked and Jesus was averting his eyes by looking down at the sand, and so he started writing in the stand just to keep his eyes off of the naked woman. Well, I don't even know she was naked. I can't believe they would drag a naked woman out there in front of the whole, the whole crowd. Maybe they would. I don't know. They were nasty people, but I, I just don't think so. And the fifth uh, speculation, he wrote, where's the man? Hey, you got the woman out here. Hey, where's the man? Seems like he was writing that in the sand. He would also say it to him. Hey, guys, where? how come you're not judicially accusing the man? By the way, there is no evidence that there was any kind of judicial proceeding at all. The Pharisees just brought the woman in there. She had not been legally tried. At least there's no evidence of her being legally tried before any legally constituted tribunal. John 8, verses 7 through 8. So when they continued asking him, they continued asking him because they thought they thought he thought they had him, and Jesus wasn't responding right off the bat. He was writing in the sand, and so they just kept coming after him. We got you now, Jesus. We got you. What you going to say? So when they continued asking him, he lifted himself up, and I would say he lifted himself slowly and dramatically, with majesty, if you will. He lifted up and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Now this expression, let, let you cast the first stone, has become an idiom in the English language. It has become so popular. And, and But where this comes from is the law. Jesus quoted the law because the law says this in Deuteronomy 17, 7, the witnesses' hands are to be the first in putting him to death, and after that the hands of all the people. You must purge the evil from you. The law required that in a capital case, if someone was to be stoned, the witness who, brought, who, who testified against the person, against the defendant, and, and whose testimony convicted the defendant, that person had to throw the first stone. What was the purpose of that law? It was a guard against perjured testimony because it's one thing to perjure somebody, it's another thing to actually kill them when you know they're innocent. A lot of people are not going to do that. So this was a good judicial safeguard here. 
Notice how well Jesus knew the law. He quoted right off the top of his head in any circumstance. He always did this. And so he said, okay, guys, you know, you're testifying against this woman. You throw the first stone. Now, the part about being without sin is not really in the law, but it's assumed that it would be an innocent witness, someone who hadn't purged himself that would throw in the stone. So Jesus is saying, okay, if you're not perjuring yourselves, if, if you're telling the truth about his woman, and you're without sin, you haven't lied about it, well then throw the first stone, you kill her. Now that assumes that without any sin means without perjury, but it could mean Jesus is just saying, look, if you're so pure, if you haven't committed adultery, why don't you throw the stone? Because you're guilty too. And if you're guilty, what are you throwing the stone at her for? Well, the NIV Study Bible says that without any sin means, means without this particular sin of adultery. And I think that's the way most people take it. So if you are without any sin of adultery, then you throw the first stone at her. It doesn't say that, but it's a reasonable speculation. John Gill says that it means that when Jesus says, if you are without any sin, it means that if you are without notorious and scandalous sin. And of course it can't mean you're perfect without sin at all. Obviously, it can't mean that, but it could mean if you're guilt, if you're not guilty of adultery in particular, or in general, notorious and scandal sin. But at any rate, I just said the uh, NIV Study Bible denies that it means without the particular sin of adultery. That it, they affirm that it means without any particular sin of adultery. Actually, they deny that. They say that's not that. But John Gill says yes. It means if you are without the sin of adultery, throw the first stone. John. Uh, Adam Clark says the same thing. Jameson Fawcett Brown, the same thing. If you are without the sin of adultery, you throw the first stone. Now, adultery was quite widespread then. Let me give you a quote from John Gill. Adultery increased to such a degree in this age that they were obliged to leave off the trial of suspected wives because their husbands were generally guilty this way. And the waters would have no effect if the husband was criminal also. I've already mentioned this. J uh, John Gill also says, and this sin so greatly prevailed, our Lord well knew, and perhaps none of those scribes and Pharisees were free from it. And so Jesus, knowing that everybody was screwing around with everybody, kind of like in America today, since Jesus knew that that's what was going on, he said, okay, I think I'll ask you to throw the first stone. He knew he could turn the accusations back on them and get to their guilt conscience, especially in front of the people there. And the people probably knew they were all committing adultery too. I wouldn't doubt it. Verse 8, and again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. All of this pausing that Jesus did by writing in the ground, in the dirt, created great dramatic effect as the crowd stood around and waited to see what was going to happen. What it did was it gave the Pharisees an opportunity to slink away unobserved by Jesus. He's looking at the ground and says, okay guys, you're going to throw the first stone. I'm waiting on you. I'll just write down here on the ground while I'm waiting for you to throw it. Come on, let's see you do it. And, of course, they weren't going to do that. They weren't going to execute a woman in front of the, in the temple precincts with a stone. They might have been hard-hearted Pharisees, and they might have been adulterers, but they weren't murderers. And, again, there was no legal proceeding to prove that the woman was guilty in adultery. All right, so verse 9. When they heard this, they left one by one, they meaning the Pharisee, accusing Pharisees, they left one by one, starting with the old men. Only he, he Jesus, was left with the woman in the center. They left because they knew they were without sin. They were either conscience-stricken because they felt guilty or they were afraid of their sins catching them out when Jesus publicly pointed out to them that they were adulterers, assuming then when he said that you were without sin, it's without sin of adultery, and I think that's reasonable. Here's the way John Jameson Fawcett and Brown eloquently put it, quote, makes the impudence of those impure hypocrites in dragging such a case before the public eye the more disgusting. <laughs> 
Yes, it was disgusting. This is why the story is so so popular. How Jesus dealt with these disgusting hypocrites and stood up for that poor, bedraggled, sinful woman. Why did the older men leave first? Well, it could be because they were the first to realize what was involved. Because they were the smartest of the of the crew. They realized that they were going to be breaking the law by throwing a stone at the woman when they themselves were not exactly good witnesses. Or they might have realized the public reaction, even if legally, even if you could make a case that they legally could throw the first stone, the reaction would have been terrible to stone a woman right there in the in the front in the temple. Or it could be because they were older, they had more opportunity to commit more adultery than all the younger one, the younger men there. So that was John Gill's great speculation. I don't think that's true. I think they just realized we better get out of here. We have screwed this trap up bad. He has sprung himself from the trap. Notice why he's doing this. He did not run afoul of the Roman authority by saying stoner and getting the Romans all upset with him for arrogating to himself judicial prerogatives that weren't his. He didn't do that. And on the other hand, he didn't condone adultery, which we'll see in a minute when he said, go and sin no more. So we go to verses 10 and 11. When Jesus stood up, he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? That's a rhetorical question. Of course, it was obvious that no one had condemned her. And he was just pointing that fact out to her again, making a dramatic scene in front of everybody. Hey, hey, nobody condemning you. Verse 11, no one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go, and from now on do not sin anymore. Now, it's obvious that the woman was an adulterer because he, Jesus said don't sin anymore. So the Pharisees, at least they weren't accusing an innocent woman. They were accusing a guilty woman. But Jesus said, guess what? I can forgive sin. Now, when he calls her woman, that's a, it sounds terrible in, in the English translation of the Greek. The Greeks didn't have that feeling when they heard that. And I've looked through a lot of different translations. I found the NIV says woman here. In another place, the NIV says dear woman, which I like, but they didn't do it here. I don't know why. The more modern translations, like the Good, good News translation, just leaves out the address at all and just says, where are they? Which that's, I like my dear woman. So that's my translation. When Jesus stood up, he said to her, my dear woman, where are they? Shows a little bit of affection for this woman. Jesus loved the sinner. He hated the sin. That is a formula that will stand any Christian in good stead. Of course, you know, of course that's the proper attitude toward homosexuality. A homosexual, we're supposed to love him, but we're supposed to hate the sin, just like the same thing we do with an adulterer, just like Jesus did here. Of course, now I was looking, I was doing a a teaching on homosexuality in the Christian, and found some on Google Images a bunch of people saying, a bunch of homosexuals saying, oh, "I love the sinner, hate the sin." I forgot how they were doing it, but they were mocking it and making fun of it like that's impossible to do. Well, to, to somebody who's sunk in sin, I guess that is impossible to see how that's possible. That's the way the world looks at sinners. They say, you hate the sin, you hate the sinner. For example, the world, at least currently, I don't know how long this is going to last, but currently it's a sin to commit pederasty, like Jeffrey Epstein, you know, having people under the age of consent or kids having sex with them. Oh, this is terrible. This is terrible. Well, what do you do? Well, you hate the man because you hate the sin. The Christian on the, or let's say murder, you know, somebody murders somebody, everybody, I hope you fry in hell. I recently there was somebody got executed and, and the victim's family was at the execution and they say, I hope you fry in hell. Folks, we got to hate the sinner. Uh, excuse me, hate the sin, but we love the sinner. And that's something the world can't understand. I remember in my hometown years ago, 
there was a godly Christian woman, and she was elderly too, I think 670s or so, and her husband was a well-known Christian man in town, uh, and, and they were a white couple, and a black man raped her and got put in jail. Well, you know, down in the South, that's, you know, there's a lot of history about that. That's serious business. So the 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 Christian man went down to the cell and asked to see the, the, the rapist. He goes to the cell of that young black man. He says, I just want to tell you something. I forgive you for what you did. That's something, my friends, and that really affected me, I'll tell you. Because I knew, I, knew, I knew this guy's reputation. I didn't know him personally. But when I heard he had done that, I said, you know, that's something the world will not understand. We're supposed to forgive the sin. We're supposed to forgive the sinner. I keep saying it backwards. We forgive the sinner. We love the sinner, even though, of course, rape is terrible. Of course, murder is terrible. Of course, adultery is terrible. Jesus did not come into the world to condemn. The world's already condemned. John 3:17 for God did not send his son into the world that he might condemn the world but the world might be saved through him. That woman was condemned. She was condemned morally, she was condemned by her conscience and she could have been condemned if the Jews had found a witness to stone her. She could have been condemned to death under adultery even though the law was not enforced and even though they were full of adultery too. So in many ways the woman was condemned, but Jesus forgave her because he didn't come to condemn her. She knew he was condemned, and she knew that if she he knew that if she repented and condemned no more, she was forgiven for it. It's over. Now when he says do not sin, this of course rescued him from a possible charge from the Pharisees that he was condoning immorality, which of course he was not. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the end of that great story. The woman caught in adultery. We will take up the next story in John 8 verses 12 through 20, where Jesus points out to his listeners that he is the light of the world. I hope you listen to that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one. 